like you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, so we're back in our series in 2 Corinthians. I am content. We're in chapter 8. I'd like to read the chapter for you, if you'll bear with me here. Verses 1 through 24, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness." As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we're sending the brother who's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but... He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. If you take a look in your ESV, there's a heading over this chapter, it's called a pericope. Uh, the pericope in my version says, encouragement to give generously. Now, I'm, I'm like you. I've sat in pews frequently. And as soon as I hear that the sermon is about giving, my, my gut tightens up inside. I go, oh, here we go again. And I'm sure that the 
Corinthians had some type of expectation about that when they saw what, what uh, the subject of Paul's letter was all about. And I think Paul surprised them. Maybe he's going to surprise us as well by going a little bit deeper than what they expect. Now, Paul's theme uh, that's kind of dominated this letter so far has been Christ in us. Uh, he's been talking about Christ in the Corinthian church, Christ in him. He's trusting on Christ in them to get beyond this little bit of tension that they've had. They've had some false teachers have come in. Uh, they've been given Paul's reputation to, uh, a bad name and uh, they've been making accusations, but Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit in the Corinthians will bring all this resolution for the glory of God. So he establishes credentials as an apostle. He's kind of laid everything out in front of him. Uh, he's established that he's a believer, they are believers, and so he's depending on the commonality, depending on the union that they all have in Christ to move them forward together. So this is part 12 of our series. Uh, this sermon is called First to the Lord. And here's the premise that we're going to explore today. Here's, here's the primary truth that lies underneath everything. Giving, giving is an expression of grace. Now I want you to think about that as we go forward. Giving is an expression of grace. Now in chapter 6 and 7, uh, Paul has gone from establishing his credentials to uh, transitioning into teaching them, into equipping them to go forward as the church. In chapter 7, Paul says, make room in your hearts. He tells them, my heart is big, it's got room for you. Uh, you need to make room for me. We're all in this together. And uh, now he's going to show them what it looks like. Now we're getting into some pragmatic matters of how to apply this to our lives. And he's going to use, oddly enough, he's going to use giving as a basis. So um, now, let me tell you why this is important at this particular time. Uh, uh, Jesus goes to the cross. Uh, he is buried, resurrected, um, comes and walks with, with, with his people for a while, rises up into heaven, and tells, uh, tells his followers, well, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Spirit of God. And, you know, if you follow his teaching, you realize the Spirit is going to come and fill believers. It's going to be an indwelling Spirit. And that's one of the primary differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Spirit goes from being an outside influence on God's people to being an influence from the inside. Well, that happens in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes down at Pentecost. The guys are up in the, uh, the, the, the followers are up in the room. Uh, the Spirit lights on them as tongues of fire. Uh, they begin speaking in tongues. They go out into the city, which is crowded with about a million and a half people, and Peter stands up and, and he preaches the first evangelical sermon in the New Testament. Uh, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and 3,000 people get saved. Uh, now, there's a lot going on during that time. Uh, Peter's sermon was news, good news, but new news for them. Uh, and just a little while after that, Stephen delivers a sermon as well. He's standing in front of the leaders. And Stephen's sermon is a doozy. Uh, he talks about the three most precious icons in the Jewish faith. He talks to them about Moses. He says, you revere Moses so much. And they're all standing there and nodding heads. Yes, Moses was it. For the Jews, Moses was as good as being Jewish God. He was like, almost like God to them. Highly revered, highly respected. He was the leader of the faith. And Stephen says, well, you, you guys like Moses so much, you didn't even listen to what he said. 
You never, you never really followed them. You, you grumbled, you groaned, you complained against them. So now they're upset. Well, you know, they're living in some revisionist history. No, we were all there together. We were all nice guys. We really, you don't understand, we really think most of you oh yeah, well let me tell you about the law. Now that's the second big icon. He said, you, you pride yourselves in God having given you the law and, and how it sets you apart and everything. You haven't obeyed the law. Well, now they're really upset. And what do you mean we haven't obeyed the law? So they're gritting their teeth. They're angry. And, and Stephen moves on to the temple, to the tabernacle. Now, again, there are three major icons of the Jewish faith, Moses, the law, and the tabernacle. And what Stephen says about the tabernacle is, you know, you think God lives in a house made by human hands? He doesn't live in a house made by human hands. And now they're so upset. What do they do to Stephen? They stone him. They kill him. And now, all of a sudden, persecution comes down on the brand new, just-born church. The 3,000 people that were saved when the Spirit came down at Pentecost have to run for their lives. Now, it's funny because Jesus said beforehand, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. And what happens is the Spirit comes down... um, these 3,000 Jews that have been filled with the Spirit scatter. Of course, where do they go? Judea. Some of them don't stop there. It's too close. They go to Samaria. They go to the outermost parts of the world. Indeed, Peter goes to Samaria and ministers to the people there. The Spirit falls on them. He comes back. He goes, the Spirit's come to the Samaritans. Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, a little further away comes back, he goes, the Gentiles have been given the spirit of the Lord. So the persecution arises in Jerusalem, sends the Christian scattering. There's still a core people, core group of people left in Jerusalem. There's still some faithful people, but they're under heavy persecution. Most of them have lost their jobs. Most of them have lost their social circles. It's difficult for them to buy and sell because they're so opposed by the Jews in Jerusalem. And Paul is out there running through Asia, what we know as Turkey, uh, and Macedonia and Greece, trying to raise funds to support the church in Jerusalem. So the gospel went from Jerusalem throughout the entire world, and, and now Paul's trying to support the people in Jerusalem. They have no money, they have no means of income. And Paul is going to use this need that exists in Jerusalem to demonstrate to the Corinthians what the love of Christ looks like. He said, open up your hearts to me. Let's demonstrate the love of Christ. Now he's going to show them what it looks like. And he's going to do this by, number one, he's going to show them examples of what their love looks like. And that'll be in verses 1 through 5 and verse 9. He's going to give them counsel as as far as what love looks like, verses 6 through 8 and verses 10 through 15. Then he's going to hold them accountable for what he told them, verses 16 through 24. So let's look at Paul's first demonstration of what the love of Christ looks like uh, in the examples that he uses. Now, let me share this with you. Um, Examples are really important, and and I want you to think about People who have been examples to you, um, maybe in your walk, maybe just in, in how you live. You know, I can think back to um, people that entered my life before I got saved. Uh, I can see the Holy Spirit uh, moving through them now that I look back upon it. Uh, when 
uh, I, I, you know, I started my career in fast food. I had two managers, one down in Orlando and one up here in, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, guys a little bit older than me. Uh, they, they were so pleasant. They were just always smiling. It aggravated me. And, and you know, once I got to know them, uh, they had very difficult lives. You know, I, they'd say, oh, this is what's going on. I'd go, Say, oh, this is happening. I go, ah. and and I, I I started what how how is it they're smiling all the time? Why are they always so happy? Why when I go in in the morning I get this, hey John, how you doing? How's your day? Oh, I had this happened yesterday, and that happened, but the Lord's good. And I'd go, ah, oh, that's a crutch you're using, you know. But they they were just they were able to navigate difficult waters with an incredible peace and calm. And I didn't realize what was happening until after I got on the other end of all this. I went, God was trying to show me that there's a difference between safe people and unsafe people. That they have a peace. That they have a way to get through the hard parts of life. That they don't have to sit there and wonder, why is this happening to me? That they can be happy even though they have struggles just like I have struggles. Now, God has been very good to me in that. But I'll tell you another area that God's been good to me. Maybe he's been good to you in this area too. God has been good to put examples of my flaws in front of me. Okay, I'll, somebody will come up and show up in my life and I'll go, I just can't stand that guy. He does this and he does that. And, you know, and, and, and then if I'm, if I'm mature enough, I'm not always there, to pray for them, God begins showing me, yeah, well, that's you. Kind of you do the same thing. Yeah, you've heard the story about judging the person with the speck in their eye, the splinter in their eye. Uh, and it says, don't, don't, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye, look at the log in your own eye. Yeah, you're familiar with that, amen? Okay, so here's something interesting about that. If you get into the language of that, the word that they use for wood in that passage is the same. It's the same type of wood. The splinter he has is made out of the same wood that the log in your eye is made out of. You recognize the flaw in that person because you have it. See, you see it because you're familiar with it. And God has been good to put examples of those people in front of me. I don't always like it. Maybe he's shown you the same thing. Examples are important. And Paul's going to use two of them here. His first example is the Macedonians. Now, this is up in northern Greece. Well, we'll get into who they are and what was going on in just a second, but here's what we need to know about the Macedonians. The very, the very first thing that we need to see about them is not in verse 1, it's in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave, the Macedonians, gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The first thing we need to know about the Macedonians is that they surrendered themselves completely to the Lord. Now, Paul's taking this collection. That's what these two chapters are about, 8 and 9. And, and when he went to the Macedonians, they looked at Paul. They listened to him. They're godly people. They, they were to assume that they prayed about it, that they went before the Lord, and they surrendered to the Lord. They looked up at him and said, look, we don't know what to do. We don't know what decision to make right here. We're going to do whatever you lead us to do. They literally said, not our will, but yours, Father. They gave themselves first to the Lord. 
Now, what we find out about the Macedonians right, right up front is that God is their priority. God is their highest priority. The first thing they do is say, well, let's see what God would have us do. And then what we're going to find out is that God gives them something very difficult to do. And instead of analyzing, instead of wondering whether or not they really heard from God, they just go ahead and do it. First to the Lord. First to the Lord. The most important aspect of the Macedonians. Why? Why did they do it that way? I mean, they're new Christians. They probably haven't even gone through a systematic theology book. So why do they do this? Take a look in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Do you see what happened? They have received God's grace. Now, the, it, it's a word charis here, the Greek word charis, uh, that, has, that certainly has that connotation of unmerited favor, but it also has uh, directionality to it. It, it, it indicates that there's a flow happening. Grace has flowed from God. Unmerited favor has flowed from God and is flowing towards the Macedonians. You see, they're, they're, they're bowing to God's will because grace has flowed to them. And now they're doing what they're designed to do. We talk frequently about the fact that as God's people, we're designed to be vessels of grace. Vessels that don't just hold grace, but vessels that dispense grace as well. So they receive grace, and it has flowed to them, and now it's about to flow from them. Now, we, we know this. We, we know that we're supposed to be vessels. We know that grace is supposed to flow from us, but sometimes it's hard for us to do. Sometimes our situation around us will make it difficult for us to be vessels of mercy and grace. Look what happened to the Macedonians. This is why they're a good example, verses 2 and 3. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Listen to what Paul just said there. They're afflicted. They have an abundance of joy in their extreme poverty. Put all that together. And more so, the, the wording for extreme poverty is the same wording that they use when, when we hear the parable of the widow and her mites. You know that story. Jesus and his followers are standing around the temple. They're watching people throw things into these. The, the temple had these, these huge vases. They were made out of metal. They were about this tall, and they had necks on them that were big like this and had a big round ring around them. And, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes would walk by those things, and they'd throw their change in it, and, and they, they would ring because they were bell-shaped. They would ring, and, and you know, the, whoever made the largest ring, people would look, oh, oh, did you see what they did? Wow, that was a loud ring. And they got good at this after a while. Some would come in and kind of hit it sideways, you know, so it would kind of roll around and ring a little bit more. And the, in the middle of all that, this lady walks up, and she has nothing. She's got two mites. It's the equivalent of a penny. She throws it all into the thing. Probably doesn't even hit the thing and make a ring or anything. And somebody says something, and Jesus does what? He says, oh, don't say anything about her. She just gave everything. She gave more than you gave. 
And, and the point of all this is, is that the woman has put herself in a position where she has to trust God. No, not just trust God for the future, but trust God for her next meal. She's just given everything she had and put it in, in this bell to honor God, and now she has no money to eat, much less go home and replace worn-out clothes or, or pay the electric bill or, or, or whatever. So she is totally in the hands of God, totally surrendered to God. The Macedonians are in this extreme poverty, the same type of poverty that she had, and they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They have nothing. Not only are, do they have this, this, this incredible poverty, but they're suffering affliction. They're having a hard time, maybe with the culture around them. And they're overflowing with joy and generosity. And it's not just that. I mean, that, that's incredible enough. That's enough to overwhelm you. Look at, look at the next word. Look at how they gave. Begging us earnestly for the favor, and that's charis. Okay, same word for grace. Begging earnestly for Kedis, the flowing of taking part in the relief of the saints. They're begging to be part of the collection. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, that's, that's evidence of a transformation. That's evidence that something is going on in the hearts of these people. There's a tangible demonstration of the presence of of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the change that's going on in their heart. Now that doesn't come, that doesn't come from a vacuum. God didn't go wave some kind of magic wand over them and all of a sudden make them generous. And we know that because of the next example that Paul uses. An example that all of us can understand. Starting in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We need to consider this carefully. Because we hear Jesus was rich, he became poor, so I could become rich. And I'm not sure we always ascribe to this the depth of the Lord's richness. Because prior to coming down here and being born in that manger, he was in heaven. He was with the Father. He'd been with the Father eternally. He was the one that God created in and through everything. God, God was in heaven in his glory and Christ was there with him. Seated in authority over everything. It's incredible. He had things that are beyond our imagination. And the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are totally self-sustaining. 
totally, totally, they need nothing else. That, that God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed some fellowship. He didn't create us because he, he, he wanted to see if he could do a good job with us. God has everything he needs. Everything he is is all that he needs. And Jesus is right there in the middle of it. And he decides to step out of heaven, to come down here, to take on flesh, just so that he could go to the cross be humiliated, be tortured, be rejected, die on the cross alone and forsaken by everybody just so that he could be resurrected, just so that he could ascend, just so that he could send the Spirit, just so that you could be saved. He stepped out of heaven Gave all that up. Now look, he didn't become any less God. That's a whole other thing. He's fully God, fully man. But he took on this flesh so that you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've repented from your sins and turned towards him, he did it all so that you could be saved. He was incredibly rich. We heard an awesome sermon last week from Scott. Thank you, Scott. About how you matter. Do you realize how much you matter? But do you realize how much Christ matters as well? Because without him doing what he did, we don't matter. Christ was incredibly rich. And he gave it up so that we could be rich with him. So Jesus, Jesus sets the tone for giving. I mean, he gave everything, didn't he? He sets the tone. He surrendered everything. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians. He said, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And what he means here is it, it's not that Jesus is not equal to God. It's just that Jesus did not hold so preciously to his position in heaven that he refused to come down here, that he bent to the will of the Father, that he did what the Father sent him to do, that he was willing to step out of holiness and into the filth of this world for our sake. So, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man. Can you imagine a religion that is based on the idea that God takes on the form of man and comes and lives and sacrifices himself for him? I mean, all the other religions are the other way around. We sacrifice ourselves for him. Took on the form of a servant. Became a man. Matthew talks about this. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus gave. He was very rich, 
spiritually. All of heaven was under his authority. He became very poor physically so that he could make you and me spiritually rich so that we could be transformed from being destitute and lost to having all the riches of the kingdom of God. So Paul's examples of the love of Christ as demonstrated through our giving are the Macedonians and Jesus Christ himself. And the way they give, it, it just covers all the bases in our life. It covers all the spiritual aspects of our life and all the physical aspects of our life. So, like, we get that. Okay, how do we do it? What does this type of giving look like? Now, Paul's going to show us as he moves on to his counsel. This is his instruction on how to walk in this, uh, how to show the love of Christ in verses 6 through 8 and then verses 10 through 15. Here's, here's what Paul wants him to see, and, and here's the bottom line of these two passages, is that God's gifts and everything he gives us are interrelated. None of them sit apart from the other. Uh, they all depend on each other. They all are expressed in similar fashions. In verse 6, he says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should comp complete among you this act of grace, this giving, an act of grace. Giving is an expression of grace. But as you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love. For you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Is also all that God has done in them, the faith that he's given them, the, the utterance that he's given them, their, their capability to be ambassadors for him and his word, the, the knowledge, uh, the awareness of who God is, of his character and nature, everything that God has bestowed upon them, the love that God has given them. The love that's in him. Yeah, we are able to love him because he first loved us. Amen? All of these are gifts. And what Paul is saying is giving. Giving is right there with all of them. They're, they're, they're all interrelated. One is like all the others. Each is like every one of the others. And giving is part of that. And I don't know. I don't know that until I dived into this that I thought giving was an act of grace. I don't know that I've ever looked at it that way. That giving is an act of grace. Well, how is that? Isn't giving something we're supposed to do? Well, yeah. Um, isn't, even, isn't giving an obligation? Uh, I don't know. You see... We're being molded and shaped into the likeness of Christ. Amen? God, God is conforming us to his image. And the image that he's conforming us to is an image that has given everything for us. So as we turn to the world around us and become demonstrations of what we are being conformed into, we have to demonstrate that in every area of our life. We have received grace. We've been changed by grace. Grace should flow from us. And yeah, I think we probably get that. We're supposed to love unconditionally. It's hard to do, but we're supposed to do it. You know, we're supposed to, by his grace, uh, know who he is and understand who he is, study the word uh, and be edified by that. We're supposed to, to, everything that flows from us is supposed to be uh, a reflection of that grace. Well, that, that counts in our giving as well. 
We don't give because we're supposed to. We give because God gave, and we're becoming conformed to the image of God. Look, look at the next verse, verse, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. We're supposed to be billboards for the transformational power of Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't extend to our giving, well, then our billboard's not very bright in that area. Paul wants them to give freely. He wants them to give knowingly. You know, th this is not, again, this is not God just transforming us into people who like to give. This is a conscious expression of grace and love, just like we have to be conscious of our expression in those other areas. We have to strive for them. But he wants them to do it freely, uh, knowingly and willingly as well in verse 10 and in this matter i give my judgment this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also the desire to do it so now finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have willingly and realistically they have to be realistic about what they're giving. Can you get over-enthusiastic about this? Well, yes, you can. You, can. you know, you remember when uh, God delivered his people out of Egypt? You remember what they carried out of Egypt with them? Anybody? All the gold and silver in Egypt. They brought all the riches of Egypt with them. I, I'll bet you any money. Uh, there, there were probably somewhere around a million, a million and a quarter people in that, in that procession. I'll bet they're all thinking, we're rich. This is fabulous. We left the country and they gave us everything. Look at all this gold and silver I've got on my camel here. Well, you know, uh, three or four days out in the wilderness and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this junk. <laughs> There's nowhere to spend it. All it is is, it, and, and you know, the, the, uh, I, maybe they thought it was theirs, maybe they didn't. My, I, I think they were normal human beings. I think that somewhere along the way, somebody goes, well, what'd you get? Well, I got two goblets and I got two dishes. What'd you get? Oh, I got three goblets. How'd you get three goblets? You know, so, I mean, they're, they're normal people, okay? And it took them going through the wilderness for quite some time. It took them receiving the law and uh, being at the base of that mountain and hearing everything that was going on before they realized that the riches weren't for them. God didn't give them riches to make them wealthy and think higher of themselves. He gave them riches to build the tabernacle. So, you know, by, by then they're kind of getting the idea. Moses says, okay, bring me all your gold and silver and everything. They're bringing them gold and silver and, and blue thread and, and, and certain types of, of cloth and so on and so forth. And Moses has to do what? He has to go, hey, wait a minute, we got enough. Stop. Stop. We got more than what we need. So we can get over enthusiastic about this. We have to be realistic. See, that's what the Macedonians did. They gave above their means, but they submitted everything to the Father. It wasn't just mass hysteria, everybody's got to give. They submit everything to the Father. Paul's telling us the same thing here. We have to give realistically. For if, in verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not what according to what he doesn't have. Now, if we understand that, you give according to what you have. Now, you got to ask yourself a few questions. You know, what do I have? And it's very easy to sit down and look at what your resources are and plan on what you're going to have. Follow me on this. 
I'll give after I paid my mortgage and made a payment on my car. And, uh, oh yeah, I got to pay my utilities. I'll give after I do those three things. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, oh, I need dental work. I'll, I'll give after I pay for my dental work. I, I got to have the money for that, right? Right? And, and I got to have, I, I, I have my latte. <laughs> I want to go to a movie this week. And I want a new pair of shoes. And, but God, I'm going to tell you something. When I get done with all that stuff, I'm going to give you 10%. So, so we give within our means, but we have to understand what our means are. And I would just challenge you that where God appears in that list of things that need to be done when you give would be an indication of where God is in the priorities of your life. I'll take care of you, God, after I'm done taking care of myself. So we have to be realistic. It has to be according to our means. But we have to be realistic about what our means are. Now, so that's a caution when we do this. But here's some other things we need to avoid. We need to avoid comparing ourselves to each other. I mean, I could be standing in the temple and want to ring that thing as much as the, the richest Pharisee did. Well, I'm going to throw extra money in there and ring it. Okay, so I, I, I don't want to compare. I want to give according to what God has given me. I don't want to go beyond that. But I got to do it without comparing. I got to do it without guilt. You know, it's easy to sit and listen to a sermon on giving and then think, well, I got to give now. They talked about giving. You do it without guilt. You do it freely. You do it willingly. You do it with knowledge. And then we're told that those who have more should give more, those who have less should give less. So Paul wants him to do all this. But he also, he also wants him to give with confidence. Yeah, verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and bur you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So it kind of all evens out. It's not socialism. Some people would look at this, but that's not what we're talking about here. Paul wants them to give with the confidence that God will accept their offering. That if the offering is given with a clean heart, with, with the right motives, that God will accept it and bless it and use it for his own purposes. Once we release it to God, then it goes to him for use as he sees fit, for the edification, the nourishment of his church, for the glory of his kingdom. Now this requires that that. And in our giving, we have to trust God to take care of us. Not only do we have to trust God to take care of us in our giving, but we have to trust that those in need have a valid need. That's between them and God. We also have to trust that those who oversee the distribution of the funds are in Christ just as we are, and we've released it to them, and that we're going to respect them and how they, they determine to distribute the funds. And we have to believe above all and everything else that God is sovereign over all this. Either God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent either he's everywhere he knows everything and he has all power to regulate and distribute this as the way he wants or he doesn't and if we do then once we make our offering we got to let it go 
We gotta let it go. So Paul wants him to give knowingly, willingly, realistically, and with the confidence that God sits in sovereign authority over all of it. Finally, and I love this, Paul's shown them the examples and he's given them the instructions, here are the guidelines. Now he's going to hold them accountable. And I, I, just, I just think it's, it's cute the way Paul does this. Um, he, he's not just telling them and, and leaving up to them uh, we, we see this accountability in verses 16 through 24. He's sending trusted men. He's sending men of integrity. Uh, Titus is there. They know who Titus is. He mentions a couple other guys. You know, we really don't know who the guys are, but apparently they're well-respected. Apparently they're well-known. Uh, but if you read through the passage, you find out there's a mix of guys in here. There are some guys representing the church in Jerusalem. Um, and there's an accountability here. There's a, there's a check and a balance. Uh, they're all doing it before God, but uh, they're doing it so that there would be no question, no accusation against them from men around them as to where these funds are going, what they're going to be used for, and whether or not they all get there. Uh, but here's what Paul says. He goes, you know what? Uh, I gave you these examples. I'm going to give you these guidelines. And by the way, the guys are on their way. They're coming. Uh, so when they get there, you need to be ready for them. I'm going to hold you accountable for the biblical truths that I just shared with you. So Paul doesn't just leave them hanging. He does what a good spiritual leader does. He holds them accountable. How are you doing on this? We're going to find out how you're doing on this. So he's given these examples, he's given them counsel, he's now held them accountable, and Paul has one final encouragement for them uh, in verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now Paul has, has been telling them the joy that he takes in them, the joy he takes in their testimony, how he rejoices over them, how they've blessed him. Uh, even though there's this tension, Paul's now looking beyond the tension. It's going to be resolved. It's all going to be fine. Prove to these men that I'm sending you that you are everything that I said you were. I know you can do this. I've seen the Holy Spirit in you. Just demonstrate Christ to them. He asked for proof. Not so that their works can be recognized carefully, be just considered as carefully, but so that the grace that they have received will become evident in how they behave so that they become those ambassadors that he was talking about so that they can become those dispensers of grace grace has been given to them and now Paul encourages them to give grace to others giving is an expression of grace expression that we've been given grace an expression the fact that God's only son came down and gave everything for us, and now we want to emulate him, imitate him. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you gave so much to us. Impress upon our hearts, Father, the magnitude of that giving. Lord, not that we might feel obligated to give, but that it might flow from us with joy. Father, that we would do it willingly, knowingly. Father, uh, with joyful hearts and in a manner that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.